preaching text is uh, on page four in your bulletins. You can turn there. I'll read to you uh, from Luke chapter one, starting in verse five. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side, on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and, and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. He went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This is the word of God. We are uh, beginning a new series today, and for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, the Christmas story, the advent of Jesus. And uh, I want to tell you that, you know, I really love the Christmas season. It's my favorite holiday. Um, I just like, you know, the songs and the giving of presents, and it's just a time of family and festivities, you know. And uh, it's a season of happiness. Even, isn't this not true? Even the workplace is kind of nice, you know? They put up decorations and they have office parties and everyone, you know, is generally kind of jolly, right? Um, but we should realize that this is America's kind of secularized version of Christmas, right? And uh, I, I remember someone asking me, you know, because this is a secular Christmas, right, you know, with Santa Claus and Christmas trees. You don't really see that in the Bible, right? Uh, should we as Christians participate in that? And my answer is, I think it's fine, you know. It's fine to participate so long as, so long as we are not fooled. That we realize that there is the true Christian story of Christmas, the biblical story. And in the biblical story of Christmas, there is incredible joy and hope but 
it's in the context of profound sorrow and hopelessness. And you see, the two are interconnected. That joy and sorrow are intermingled, right? They're interpenetrated. And that's the story of Christmas that we have here. And so Luke gives us uh, our story, and he begins with the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. So we're going to look at this story, and we're going to see three things. And so here's my outline. Number one, we see a bleak and hopeless situation. Number two, we see uh, God's... uh, we see God's announcement of deliverance. And then number three, we see Zachariah's response. Okay, so three things. Number one, a bleak and hopeless situation. Number two, God's announcement of deliverance. And then number three, Zachariah's response. All right, so first, a bleak and hopeless situation. The story begins with heartache and sorrow. Heartache and sorrow on a personal level and on a national level. And so let's take a look at these each in turn. Okay, so first, a personal level. And here we're looking at the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, Zechariah was a priest. And he was married to Elizabeth, who was a daughter of a priest. So this was kind of a priestly family. And in verse 6, Luke tells us that uh, both of these, the couple, was righteous before God, and they were blameless in their walk. And, and that doesn't mean that they were without sin. You know, of course, like everyone, they were far from perfect. But what that meant is that they were believers, that they loved God, that they did their best to obey his commandments, which made it all the more tragic that Elizabeth was barren. Now, Luke mentions this detail, you know, so quickly without much comment, uh, But you have to understand that this had enormous resonance in that time and place. What did barrenness mean? You see, in the ancient world, in a very real sense, right, more than anything else, children was the wealth of the family. In the ancient world, children was the wealth of the family, so that the more children you had, right, the more hands to help you on the farm, the more bodies to tend the shop, right, the more children you had, the richer you were, and... If you wanted to be taken care of in your old age, it was absolutely necessary that you have children. This was a time when they didn't have retirement savings. They didn't have 401ks. They didn't have Social Security. And so if you wanted to not starve as an old person, you had to have children. And more than that, children were critical to the future of the community. The economic well-being of the village was directly tied to producing children, to producing the next generation. And therefore, having children was a literal life and death issue. It was a life and death issue. And it's hard for us to appreciate this as modern people, right? Because in the modern world, we have children. Why? Out of love, out of a desire for a family. And uh, for us, it's kind of optional, right? There are no economic consequences if we don't have children. I mean, actually, it's an economic detriment Uh, to have children, right? Uh, And that's why a lot of married couples delay having children. None of us blink an eye if a couple has children, you know, into their 30s, right? Because you're not harmed if you don't have children in 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 the modern world, but not so in the ancient world. The most critical thing facing the community, facing each individual family, was whether or not there were children. And so therefore... Women who had lots of children were treated like heroes, and they felt like heroes. But women who were barren, 
were looked upon in that society as basically utterly useless. That they had failed in the one task, the one thing, their, their chief role in that community was to produce children, and they had failed at that. And therefore, they felt severe and deep shame. And uh, in the modern world, you know, if someone does something that's shameful, you can kind of, you know, hide, right? You can withdraw, you can move away, but you couldn't do this in the ancient world. You see, in the ancient world, most people lived in these small little villages. And therefore, every single day, every single person who saw you knew your situation. And they basically looked at you as dead weight in that community. And that's why Elizabeth says in verse 25 there at the end, she speaks about her reproach among the people. And that word reproach there can be translated shame, disgrace. And this is why in the Bible, barrenness is the ultimate metaphor for hopelessness. For yourself, for the future, for your community. And what made the pain all the more severe and and all the more tragic for this couple is that not only was Elizabeth barren, but they were an elderly couple, right? We're not told exactly how old they were, but maybe they were in their 50s or in their 60s. Whatever the reason, they had reached the stage in their life where it was now biologically impossible for them to have children, and therefore, in their community, they were the walking dead, okay? So this is pain and and suffering on a personal level and also on a national level. And we're here, we're looking at the story of Israel. Luke begins the story in verse 5 by saying that it was the days of Herod, king of Judea. And again, just like before, you know, Luke just says it so quickly without elaboration, but everyone knew what this meant. This had deep resonance, okay? You see, Herod was the personal embodiment of the sufferings of, God, uh, of the people of God. You see, Herod was a king of Judea, king of the Jewish people, but he himself was not Jewish. He was not a descendant of King David. He was actually Edomaean. And some of you are saying, Who's, what, are, what are Edomaeans? Get this, okay? Edomaeans were descendants of Esau. So some of you are saying, how did a descendant of Esau become king of God's people? And the answer is that this was the time of the Roman Empire. And uh, Herod was a particularly skilled and uh, savvy general, and he sort of like weaseled his way into the good graces of the powers that be in Rome. You know? He lived in Rome, actually. And he got appointed by the Roman Senate to be king of Judea. And so therefore, Herod was Rome's agent of oppression and uh, enslavement. And he played the part to ruthless efficiency, you know? Herod just mercilessly taxed the people in order to support his lavish lifestyle. He would send shiploads of tribute back to Rome. And uh, we know from extra-biblical sources that Herod was this paranoid monster. So that even at the hint of rebellion or disloyalty, he would just mercilessly, ruthlessly crush any signs And just to share one vignette, um, there's a story where Herod decreed that on the day of his death, the sons of the noble families in Jerusalem would be gathered up and they would be killed. Why would Herod decree this? Because Herod wanted to ensure that on the day of his death, there was mourning in the land. He was that kind of monster, you know? The picture that I have of him is he was basically like the Middle Eastern Kim Jong-il, you know? He's just this monster, and therefore we should not at all be surprised that the Gospels tell us that when Herod 
heard about Jesus, the birth of Jesus, he was so threatened that he sent his troops to the town of Bethlehem and he ordered all the little boys of a certain age to be slaughtered. Can you imagine that? And knowing what we know about the importance of children in that culture, do you know what he did? That was basically a death sentence for that community. And so Herod would do this not just in Bethlehem, but all over the land of Israel. He was just this raging maniac monster. And therefore, Herod was a constant, painful reminder to the people of God that God's promises to them remained unfulfilled. And this is where the story of Christmas begins. Against the backdrop of just incredible sorrow and hopelessness. And despair. And the cry of everyone's heart was, How long, O Lord, how long until you rescue? How long until you deliver us? Now, I want us to pause here for a moment and reflect on our own lives. For many of you, this is exactly where you are. Many of you have experienced uh, heartache and loss. You've experienced a crushing blow of disappointment. And the future seems so bleak. And this is why some of you actually hate that secularized version of Christmas because amid the plastic smiles and the Yuletide cheer, your heart is crushed, you know, and it's breaking. But you should take solace in the real story of Christmas because the real story, the biblical story, begins exactly where you are. It begins... Uh, amid the smoldering embers of a hope long gone. You see, Christmas is not the denial. It's not the papering over of suffering. But it begins in the very bowels of agony. You know, it begins with the story of an elderly couple who has no child. It begins with a people long oppressed by Herod. Now, I think that this is the ultimate test of religion, you know, we all have a worldview, right? You may not subscribe to a formal, organized religion, but you all have a meta-explanation for reality, for the world. And whatever your meta-explanation, the critical question is, what does your worldview, what, is, what does it provide you in terms of an answer to the problem of human suffering? Or is it the case that your meta-explanation only prepares you to handle the happy triumphs of life, but not the crushing defeats. And if that's the case, right, if, if you don't have the resources to cope with suffering, I would gently challenge you to rethink the foundations of your thinking, right? Because whatever it is, it has to answer this question, what is the answer to human suffering? So that's point number one. Point number two is God's announcement of deliverance. And the story goes that uh, Zechariah is serving in the temple and uh, he's burning the incense, which is a great honor. Some of you are wondering, what's this burning of incense? Well, incense was this uh, combination of uh, these aromatic um, plants and herbs, right? And when you burn them, this pleasant aroma would wave up, right? And uh, it represented the prayers of the people. And so when the incense was burned in the temple, this was basically kind of the prayer time. And people would gather outside the temple to pray. And so the people were praying, right? And, and Zechariah is in the temple, and he's burning incense, and he would offer up a representative prayer. And you know, what were they praying for? They were praying for the redemption of Israel. And suddenly, the angel Gabriel appears. 
And he announces, your prayer has been answered. You and Elizabeth will bear a son. And your son will be great before the Lord. He will be in the power and spirit of Elijah. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And we don't realize this, but the angel is quoting the last prophecy in Malachi. Who is Malachi? Malachi was the last prophet in the Old Testament. And you have to know that what happened in the story of Israel is that they had gone away to exile in Babylon. And a small remnant, kind of like this motley crew, were allowed to return to the ruins in Jerusalem, right? And they came and they immediately started to rebuild the walls and they rebuilt the temple. And when it was all done, they kind of looked at what they had done. And the Bible tells us that the people began to weep. Because it was just such a shadow of the former glory. And Malachi comes among them and he says to the people, do not weep, because one day... God himself will come among you. One day God will renew you and he will restore the temple, he will restore Jerusalem, the glory of Israel. And the sign for you that God himself is coming is that God will send a forerunner, a prophet just like Elijah. And so what the angel is saying to Zechariah then is that all of the promises and all the prophecies of the Old Testament are finally coming true. That God at last is moving. That God is going to redeem his people. Now, two lessons that we can draw from this. A minor lesson and a major lesson. And and so let's let's, let's, uh, say the minor lesson first. Here's the minor lesson. I want you to just notice the ordinariness of it all. The ordinariness of it all. The angel says, at last, finally, finally, God is fulfilling his promises, Right? that the whole Old Testament story is coming to a crescendo. It's climbing. It's the culmination of everything. And who does he announce this to? Who will play a critical role? This humble elderly couple. They're nobody special. And yet God is going to do an extraordinary thing through them. Their son will be John the Baptist, whom Jesus said was the greatest prophet of all. And so I want you to notice just the ordinariness of it. Um, I remember when I was a teenager, I got into uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, you know? And what attracted me to the story was I had heard from my friends that the story is full of wizards and dragons and uh, kings and epic battles. And so I was like, yeah, awesome. I want to read it. And uh, as I started to read the first book, The Fellowship of the Ring, I, started, I realized very quickly that, wait a minute, this story focuses on these four hobbits. And if, you don't, if you're not familiar with the story, these hobbits, who are the hobbits? Hobbits are these diminutive creatures. They're about half the size of human beings, right? But they're not like short and fierce warriors like dwarves. Uh, they're like these simple peasant folk, you know? They're like these workaday farmers, and they're just kind of just humble. They're just, they don't really have any special powers, And I would get so irritated and annoyed every time Tolkien would just talk about these four hobbits because I wanted him to talk about Gandalf and dragons, you know? But Tolkien, with these four hobbits, are critical to the story because through these four hobbits, Sauron is defeated, the one ring of power is destroyed, and all of Middle-earth is saved. And I think Tolkien understood better than I. You see, when Tolkien wrote the story, even though it's not explicitly a Christian story, right? it's not like the Chronicles of Narnia, um, nevertheless, it's suffused 
with the Christian message, you know? And Tolkien understood that God is engaged with both the ordinariness of life and the epic. That each of you has a role to play. That your uh, seemingly insignificant life has a part in the grand drama. And I think that's just such an encouragement to us, you know? Because your troubles, your little life that you think is tucked away in the corner, has a part in God's great plans. That God is taking the strands of your life and he's weaving them into the masterpiece that will come to be. So that at the end of time, you can look over the canvas of history and you can notice your little seemingly insignificant life played a critical role in God's great redemptive designs for the world. Do you believe that? Are you encouraged by that? So that's the minor lesson. What's the major lesson? The major lesson is this that this is God's answer to the problem of suffering. This is God's answer to the problem of suffering. Think about Zachariah and Elizabeth. If God had wanted them to have a son, why didn't God give them a son in the normal way? Why did he allow them to suffer years and years of pain and shame? And uh, or think about the story of Israel. Why did God wait so long to rescue them? Did you know that the prophecy in Malachi was over 400 years before the time of Christ? Why did God wait so long? And some of you are asking that very same question right now. You're saying, God, if you love me, you would not let me suffer like this. You would not allow bad things to happen to me. And the answer of the Bible, I think, is so well articulated by the Apostle Paul. And I want to read to you what he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And, and, and so I want you to listen very carefully because this is the answer. This is the key. Paul said this, So we do not lose heart. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You see, Paul says that this present affliction is preparing for us, and that word is very important there. Preparing can also be translated uh, achieving for us. It's obtaining for us This present affliction is achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. What is Paul saying right here? Paul is saying that God will take your tears and your pain and your disappointment and he will weave them into the very tapestry of your eventual joy and happiness. Not that, you know, the joy and happiness is some sort of compensation for your sorrow and heartache, as if, you know, here is your heartache, now here is your joy. Isn't your joy so much better than the heartache? No. But that the suffering and the heartache will serve to make the joy all the greater. That it will become a part of the joy itself. You see, the very fact that Zachariah and Elizabeth were old and barren made the joy so much deeper and richer and sweeter when they had their baby, do you see? The very fact that they suffered decades of shame and pain in their community made their joy so much more glorious when God said, your son will be the long-awaited forerunner to the Messiah. 
And I think um, that's the great Christian hope. That in the end, somehow, God will redeem your sorrows. Not that uh, the future joy will make you forget, but that the sorrows and the pains will become a servant of your joy. That somehow, if it weren't for the sufferings, your joy would be diminished. The great promise of the Bible is that in the new heavens and in the new earth, in the new creation, God will take all the sufferings and all the agony that you've experienced and absorb them into the joy itself. Do you understand? This is an amazing teaching. And I think it was so well articulated by uh, the song that we sing uh, pretty often in this church. The song is called, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. And I want to share the story behind the song. It was written by George Matheson. And uh, George Matheson wrote the song uh, the night of his sister's wedding, uh, the night before his sister's wedding. And the story is that George Matheson was this incredibly promising, uh, brilliant student. He was studying at the university. And his intention was to go uh, to become a theologian, right? And, uh, you know, he was well on his way to being maybe the greatest theologian in Scotland. But then suddenly he was afflicted with a disease and he lost his sight. And uh, he had to drop out of his school because he couldn't continue. He had to give up his dreams of being a theologian. But more than that, his fiance broke off the engagement because she said, I cannot be tied down to a blind man, you know? Who's going to provide for me? And so she broke off the engagement. So George Matheson lost everything. And he returned home, and he lived with his sister. And for years and years, she was the only one who kind of provided for him, who cared for him, who took care of him. And the night before his sister was going to be married, right, he was going to lose his sister. And he began to reflect upon the arc of his life and just all the sufferings that he endured. And he thought about the grace of God And suddenly, you know, out came this pouring out of this song. And he said he wrote this song in five minutes. And I want to read to you just uh, the third verse in the song. And I think he expresses it so well, the point I'm trying to make. He says, listen, O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain. And feel the promise is not vain, that morn shall tearless be, that there will be a great dawn, a new morning in the new heavens, where there will be no more tears. And I think, you know, every time I sing that song, I kind of get choked up, you know, because it so touches me. And I think that George Matheson could not have written that song unless he lived the life that he lived. And I think the same sentiment is expressed by Tolkien uh, in his final book, The Return of the King. You know, there's this scene, right, where... um, uh, the final battle has been won and the hobbits return back to their, they're reunited with their friends and there's just this incredible celebration. There's this incredible party. But amidst the party, you know, everyone's thinking about friends that have been lost, the, the tragedy and the pain of all that has come to pass. And this is what Tolkien writes and I think he expresses it so poetically. Listen carefully. He wrote, and in the midst of their merriment and tears, the clear voice of the minstrel rose like silver and gold. And all men were hushed. And he sang to them until their hearts, wounded with sweet words, overflowed. And their joy was like swords. And they passed and thought out to the regions where pain and delight flowed together. 
and tears are the very wine of blessedness. That's the gospel answer to the problem of suffering, that our tears will become the very wine of our blessedness. And how do we know this is true? We know because in our passage, John the Baptist will precede, he will prepare the way for who? The Messiah. You see, Jesus Christ on the cross, and the cross was the greatest agony and suffering and evil conceived. And yet through that suffering, Jesus achieves for us, he prepares for us our salvation. And the joy of our salvation is enhanced. It's made all the richer and greater because Jesus endured all that he did. Do you see that? The very fact that his sufferings on the cross shows us and leads us to have an even greater joy in our salvation. And that's not only our salvation, but it is a pattern for us to follow. Do you believe that? Does that sustain you? Do you, like Paul says, do you fix your eyes on what is unseen rather than things that are seen? So that's the second point. Third and final point, this will be relatively quick. Look at verse 18. Zechariah, in response, says to the angel, how shall I know this? Now, on the surface, it sounds kind of benign that Zechariah is just merely asking for more information. But actually, Zechariah is saying, how can I know this for certain? He's not asking for clarification. He's voicing skepticism. He's saying, this is impossible. Look at me. I'm old. My wife is old. This is impossible. God, you cannot possibly turn my sorrows into joy. He's saying, my situation is hopelessly irredeemable. And you can kind of hear the voice of despair there. And why does Luke throw this story in here? You know, is he trying to discourage us? Absolutely not. Here's what's happening. Luke is giving us a dose of psychological realism. Okay, a dose of psychological realism. What do I mean by that? What I mean is this. Remember that Luke, at the very beginning of the story, tells us that Zechariah was a godly man. He was a believer. He loved God. He believed in the promises of God. Yet despite that, he succumbs to doubt and hopelessness. And I think, you know, I love this because the Bible is so honest about the human condition that in the midst of suffering and, and pain, it's so hard for us to hold on to hope in God, right? And to believe in the promises. And we so easily despair. We so easily give up. Just to share with you a personal story, and, and uh, I've uh, received permission from Christina to share this. Um, the first three months of baby Judah's life was truly a living hell. Uh, as uh, many of you know, right, babies in the first three months, uh, they never sleep. You know, they wake up all the time. They're crying. They're fussing. And so it's just so much trouble and pain. But I think that Judah was an unusually difficult baby because uh, he had these digestive issues. And so he would, I, I kid you not, he would cry and scream and his face would wrinkle up in pain for hours on end, you know. And the only thing that seemed to calm him, sort of give him any comfort, is you would have to strap him into a baby carrier and uh, bounce him up and down, up and down on this uh, balance ball. And mind you, right, he's like a behemoth of a baby. You know, he's like 97th percentile in weight. And so it's just so heavy, you know, and just so tiresome. And we would do this for hours and hours. And the situation didn't improve, and it went on for days and weeks and months. 
And uh, Christina began to despair, you know. I would constantly remind her, I would say, Christina, all the books that I've read say that the baby eventually calms down. Somewhere around the three-month mark, give or take a week or two, uh, the baby develops and the baby, you know, things become better. I mean, look at all the other babies, they calm down. And so this is just temporary. But even though Christina knew that, it didn't matter. You know, she just succumbed to just absolute hopelessness and despair. And I remember for several weeks, Christina would wake up every morning and she would just sob, you know. She would just cry and cry. And why am I sharing this story? By the way, uh, things are much, much better now. Uh, Judah is three and a half months old. And true to those books' words, he, he turned, right? He turned at around the 100-day mark. But... Um, why am I sharing this story? I'm sharing this story because even though Christina knew for a medical certainty, she knew with a medical certainty that Judah was going to get better, it didn't matter. In the middle of the pain and in the middle of the agony, Christina gave up and she, was just, she gave into depression and hopelessness. And I think that that's exactly what's going on with Zechariah. After decades of shame and agony, Zechariah had given up all hope in God. And I think what's so beautiful about the story is the answer Gabriel gives to Zechariah. Zechariah strikes Gabriel mute. Now, is this a punishment? You know, is the angel saying, how dare you doubt me? Shut your mouth, right? No, I don't think that's what's going on. Uh, Actually, it's a restorative rebuke. It's a severe mercy. You see... The angel is saying to Zachary, Zachary, your mouth is getting you into trouble. Your mouth is leading you to sin, and so therefore be silent and know that God is true. And for the next nine months, Zechariah in silence, silent wonder and awe, watched his wife as her belly began to grow and grow and grow, you know? And can you imagine what Zechariah was thinking through this period, you know? Watching his wife become pregnant, And at the end of uh, Luke chapter 1, right? We're not going to actually get there, unfortunately. But at the end of Luke chapter 1, the baby is born. And Zachariah regains his speech. And do you know what happens? He bursts forth in just this exuberant praise of God. And it's one of the most beautiful, eloquent songs in the Bible. It's called the Benedictus. And what is the point here? That through this severe mercy of being silent, Zachariah was restored. God brought Zachariah back to him. And I think, you know, as I've meditated on this story, as I've prayed about this story, I think this story is such an encouragement to us, you know? Because we're frail creatures. Our faith is so weak. We give in to despair. And does God strike us down? Does God crush us, grind us into the dust? No. God comes alongside of us. And often through a severe mercy... He restores us. He takes our little sapling faith in his hands and he nurses it until it grows into an oak tree of faith, you know? And maybe, just maybe, in your life right now, God is doing that with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beautiful story of the birth of Jesus Christ that um, amidst our sorrow 
and agony, you hear us and you know our situation and you transform our sorrow into joy. Lord, we pray that we would respond to the gospel message in faith, that we would not be like Zachariah and give in to hopelessness. But we know, Lord, that even when we do, even when we despair, you're so kind and so gentle to us. And I pray, Lord, that some of us right now are going through that severe mercy. Some of us right now are suffering muteness, but that we would take it with, with, with joy. We would rejoice in our sufferings. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.